Hello, I'm your host, Erin Gruwell, and welcome to the Freedom Writers Podcast. Today's show is episode number 50, and is the perfect bridge from our coronavirus miniseries, where we previously interviewed essential workers, journalists, politicians, and concerned citizens. Our guest today, Tony Thurman, is an ideal segue because he embodies and exemplifies the work done by each and every one of our courageous miniseries guests. Tony's priorities of safety, social-emotional learning, and ensuring learning continuity guide every decision he makes as the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction. In this episode, we discuss the difficult decisions that educators have faced in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, Tony's thoughts on the renaming of educational institutions, and how students, invigorated by the Black Lives Matter movement, will fight for justice today. While Tony's perspective is based on his role as California State Superintendent, his insight can be applied to decisions made across the country. I hope our conversation will leave you feeling enlightened and empowered to make a difference. When this pandemic began, no one knew how long it would last. Many believed that the quick transition to online learning would only last a few weeks. Others, until the end of the academic school year. Seemingly overnight, millions of parents, students, and teachers were forced into a new normal that was anything but. Without classrooms to return to, teachers moved their lessons online and quickly realized that their students were also ill-prepared for this transition. For many students, school is their safe place. They can get a free meal, socialize with friends, and forget about any troubles they might have at home. However, as classes moved into the digital realm, not only did many of these students lose their safe place, but they were left without the technological ability to attend school virtually. As a virus surged over the summer in several states, education became increasingly politicized, complicated, and divisive. With the Federal Department of Education's demands that schools return to in-person learning regardless of safety, many schools who have already returned have done so with precarious results. Our guest today, Tony Thurman, acts as the highest authority on education in the state of California. He made the call to shut down California schools last March, and again recently, he made the bold decision that most schools will not reopen this fall. Tony realizes that there is no one-size-fits-all solution, even in a single state, let alone at the national level. Using the lessons learned from the original transition to online learning, Tony has made changes to the state's approach for this academic school year. As Tony has done in California, educational leaders from across the globe now must find solutions to the questions posed by parents, teachers, and students alike. When will we go back to the classroom? How will distance learning affect students and their mental health? What if there's an outbreak at my school? Luckily, my guest today is up to these challenges. Without further ado, here's my conversation with California State Superintendent Tony Thurman. In the circles we run, everyone thinks so fondly of you. Well, thank you for what you're doing. I know you've been getting the word out to people all across the world about how to stay safe during COVID. So thanks for doing that. Mm, Thank you. Well, we have a really voracious audience of educators who are civic-minded and and all of your core pillars are things that I just wanted to explore because you're, you're on the right side of history at such a time that is so historic. And we're asking people to look at implicit bias. We're looking at the world through a very different lens. And as an English teacher who taught history, I've always believed that if we don't 
know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And so because you are the California State Superintendent of Public Instruction, what are your views at looking at history? You know, as we think about history, I'm really haunted by how many images we're seeing right now of things from our past that harken back to really the heartbreak of racism and how it's impacted African-Americans and other oppressed people. You know, when I hear the president and others saying comments about protesters that when they loot, will shoot, I know that's a quote that goes back to the segregated South at a time when people literally lost their lives for speaking up for civil rights. And so it's been disturbing in many ways to see this history playing out and seeing someone literally beg for their lives and be killed by someone who's supposed to protect them, in the case of George Floyd, really does harken back to this country's past. But I'll tell you what gives me hope and inspiration. And that's seeing all the people from all backgrounds who are saying all these things must change and that we need to make change with urgency. That gives me hope. That gives me inspiration. It lets me know that social justice and racial justice is going to happen because the people are demanding it all across the world. You know what I love about you as an educator and someone who spent the better part of her life serving and sacrificing both in the nonprofit sector and also in the political sector is equity and racial justice are always at the forefront. So for you, what does equity mean, both in the government sector and also in our schools? You know, I, I always try to shy away from the equity definition because there's so many, and I don't know that I can offer one as good as some of the great ones that I've heard. I just think that the reality is that in this country, we have such a huge opportunity gap that is really fueled by poverty and racial injustice and structural racism that really has factored into why some students have a different experience than others, right? I believe that all students are capable to look at experiences, the highest rates of segregation in our schools. It's mostly African-American students first, followed by Latino students, and, and students from other races, but ultimately low-income students are more times than not whose the quality of their education is not as high as someone else's. They may not have had the support of having preschool and early education. And so when you think of how all these things layer, you know, uh, an educational system that tries to support kids, but is, is just structurally poorly funded, and you layer that with social economic challenges of poverty and health disparities and violence in the community, of course, students are going to struggle. And our students are very resilient. I'm proud of them. They're, they're, they're resilient. And in this moment in the pandemic, they've shown their resilience, but we've got to do more to help them. I, I think this pandemic has shown a very embarrassing truth that we have allowed a digital divide to exist. For so long, we've got to say that we're going to close the digital divide once and for all. And so this is just one of the many examples, I think, where we have to think through a lens of equity. We, we want to make sure that all of our students have access. Their experiences may not be even. They may not even be equal. But we should make sure that everyone has the same opportunity. Everyone has a chance to use education and have a great life. I mean, that factors into my definition of, of equality. And, and I just think that that's something that we can actually achieve. Let's, let's try for it and let's go implement it. And let's make happen for all young people everywhere. I'm so glad you touched on that because as a foundation, our soft spot is really dealing with public school teachers who serve the most vulnerable among us. And I know that is your soft spot as well. 
And my brother was stationed at Fort Ord in Monterey, California years ago. I knew you were born at Fort Ord. And as a young man growing up with your single mother, what was that like not having some of the educational tools initially that maybe some of the other wealthier kids might have had? You know, my family did struggle. It is true. You know, my mother was an immigrant. My dad was a soldier in Vietnam who I never met until I was an adult. And so my family struggled financially. And my mom was real sick. My mom had cancer. She passed away when I was six. So my siblings and I, we all got put up. Two of us stayed, you know, two stayed in California and two ended up in Philadelphia. And we didn't see each other that much in a 10-year stretch of time. But when I look back at our experiences, um, while we struggled and while we were on public assistance and food stamps and the free lunch program, you know, I, I, I joke about how much government fees made, you know, but truth of the matter is mom was a teacher and teachers have always factored important in my life. And teachers really, you know, fight hard for their students like you did, like you did for your students in Long Beach, you know, never giving up on them. And all of my teachers, to their credit and to a person, always role model for me that my life could be better than it started if I just pursued education. And they were so right. And I think that my mom probably reinforced that, the importance of reading. You know, everyone in my family has really pursued education. My siblings, you know, they've all been able to go to college or for the, for the most part, you know, basically first generation, almost first generation college attendees. And, you know, my sister's a lawyer, my brother's a pilot and a musician. You know, there's just so many things that we've been able to achieve because of education in spite of humble beginnings. And so I'm a believer that education is, in fact, the great equalizer. I'm grateful to great teachers like you who dared to, to say that life could be better. And it's true. If you dream it, you can achieve it. But children have to have adults who help us figure out how to move from a dream to reality and how to get on the path that will get us to where we want to go. And so in spite of those humble beginnings, education is factored in huge ways in my life. And I've never once felt like I was sacrificing as a social worker, public service. I've never once felt like it was a sacrifice. I've always been where I wanted to be. And I'm grateful to be able to help others. And, and, and it's not lost on me that I'm helping kids who are in, in some respects are in the same position that I was in. And I'm grateful that now I'm in a position to be able to help as others have helped me. Well, as a public school purist myself, I love the academic background that you pursued that led you to this position. I love that you have a bachelor's degree in psychology and two masters in law and social policy and social work, because now that you have this position of power and authority, what I believe that you're very sensitive to is both mental health parity and racial justice. So can you talk about those being some of the pillars that you studied, you lived, and now you're trying to implement in schools across California? I had no idea that I would do any of these things. And, you know, I started out thinking that I might be in the medical field or maybe even uh, as a clinical person. Um, But I'm grateful for the experiences that I've had as a social worker. They've taught me that you can organize. They've taught me that you have to really listen to people. You know, you listen to the folks that you serve and that you recognize they're not defined by their circumstances. You know, people live in poverty, but they may be rich in other assets and how they see things and their resilience. And that as long as we have hope, we can overcome things. It it struck me that the best way for me to be as a social worker was a social worker who advocated for change through government, through the legislature. It changed the policies that impact the lives of so many. 
And, and believe it or not, you know, in my time in the legislature, we've been able to make more progress towards serving our families living in poverty, towards serving people who live with disabilities, towards serving young people, to you know, curbing the impact of the criminal justice system. We've been able to make more progress through the legislature in just a few years. And so I know that we're on hard times now, but I'm, I'm a believer that change is possible. And I'm grateful for the training that I had. It taught me how to work in spaces and how to improvise sometimes and how to innovate. You know, I, I had to do a lot of fundraising and always asking for help. And as a, as a person who grew up as a very shy, quiet kid, being a social worker really contributed to me finding my voice and my ability to ask for the things that are needed. And even if I'm afraid of asking, not letting my fear stop me from raising the things that I know the people I represent need. And there are times when people have laughed at me and said I was crazy when I said that I wanted to tax, you know, prisons in the state of California or ban for-profit prisons in state. Today, for-profit prisons are banned in California. And so while some laughed at me then, now it's a reality. And so I'm grateful for my training and the trajectory that it has allowed me to be on in my career of service to others. You know, as an educator, we are mandated reporters. And so I worked very closely with your brethren, the social workers, when I had students who had to be removed from their home because of neglect or abuse. So I love your sensitivity and your empathy for for young people who often would protect their parents because they were afraid to be taken away, not realizing that if they were taken away, they they might actually have a better shot at survival. So I, I, I applaud that. We're living in a remote learning, distance learning environment. We're also seeing an increase uh, in, in situations where there might be abuse and neglect, in part because we don't have teachers who are really on the front line of recognizing when there might be a new situation or a neglect situation. So we know that there are tons of challenges that we're facing. You know, we've got to figure out a way to keep those connections strong. We're, we're doing a lot to strengthen the counseling networks that exist. It's been great for me to work with teachers over the course of my profession. So right back at you. I thank you for working with us as social workers and for caring about the learning of your students, caring about their social emotional needs as well. During this pandemic, I'm so glad you you mentioned that 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 school provides so much for young kids who are vulnerable. It's it's their their breakfast and it's their lunch if they're on a free and reduced lunch program. It's the safety net and the cocoon if they need a warm and loving place. Have you noticed there was a rise with mental health during this COVID crisis where kids who didn't have that safety, who didn't have that cocoon, who didn't have those meals provided? We're really struggling. We know that there are probably upwards of, you know, 270,000 homeless youth in our state. And, and so we know that many of the young people who are already in a marginalized situation, further marginalized by the pandemic and the inability for them to get access to basic needs, to food, to school, to counseling, to support. Uh, I've been reading about students who are literally living in shelter and trying to, homeless students trying to use the computers wherever they can get access to them to stay ahead in school. It's hard for me to imagine when you don't have a place to lay your head that you're also trying to stay ahead in school. Our students are finding ways to do it. Now, that doesn't make it okay. We need to do more to help our homeless youth and our foster youth, you know, English learners, students who've been disconnected, so many students, thousands who haven't checked in. And it's true. It's documented that we've seen increases in depression, uh, during the pandemic, we've seen an increase, sadly, in rates of suicide during the pandemic. 
Um, we recently we recently helped to launch uh, a suicide prevention and training program that allows us to work through school districts. And and I've built a coalition of mental health organizations, and I'm asking them to work with us to fill gaps. Because right now, even our, our mental health uh, providers are struggling to keep their doors open. So we're pulling all these providers who do who provide mental health to fit, create kind of a patchwork quilt of support to help our students who haven't checked in this school, who have an immediate need, because we think that caring for the social emotional learning of our students is one of the one of the key pillars that we have to think about. We always talk about safety first, the, then the social emotional learning needs of our students, and then making sure that they can still get a high quality education. Mm. You know what you do that's so brilliant is you are an active listener. You're a radical listener. And I think that if you've seen all the young people who have participated in these peaceful protests, they want to be seen, they want to be heard, and they want to matter. And I think what you've been able to touch on is that you truly see them, you truly hear them, and you do believe they matter. And I I applaud you for that. Well, thanks for that. It's been impressive to work with some of the young people in our state during this pandemic, you know, I've created a youth advisory council to advise me in the California Department of Education on all matters related to youth from a youth perspective. First, we, it started out that we wanted to create a support mechanism for students who were feeling the, the pain and anxiety about being in distance learning. And we called it a virtual support circle. It's so impressed by what these students had to say that we decided to formulate that into a youth advisory council so that students have a chance to share their ideas. If we listen to our students, if we listen to them, we can get through this pandemic. If we listen to them, we can have courageous conversations around race. We can create a brighter day where we all work together across race and ethnicity, across sexual orientation and gender. You know, we can really build the platform for what this country is supposed to be about. Opportunity for all and people working together collaboratively. And I'm so proud of our Youth Advisory Council. I'm so proud of young people. When we when we hold these sessions, you know, thousands of young people have the opportunity to also participate on social media, to observe and to send in messages mm. through chat. And so we want to build this out. But as you say, we want to continue listening to our youth because we know that they're going to help us find our way. I, I love that you tackle tough issues. And I love that you are reimagining what school safety looks like and really taking a look at that school-to-prison pipeline and reimagining even policing on campuses. So can you talk a little bit about some of your initiatives as we go forward? We can lead with love, teach with equity, and understand racial injustice to create schools that are more just and more equitable through those tough conversations you're willing to have. I think given what we've seen, the gravity of what we've seen, where literally someone could be begging for their life and have their life snuffed out by a law enforcement person has really created an image that is hard for all of us to reconcile. People all across the world are calling for defunding police and getting police out of schools. And so I've convened a task force that focuses on school safety that's going to try to identify, you know, where's the right balance as it relates to police on campus? You know, I've worked with a lot of school resource officers who been able to help students and been able to respond in times when there's serious incidents like a gun on campus or a bomb threat or even a school shooting. But the reality is that we've been looking at some data and that data tells us when there are police officers on campus, 
that means that the students who interact with those police officers experience suspensions and arrests at a higher rate than students who uh, don't have police officers on their campus. And so uh, my task force on, on safety in our schools is really going to look at the issues of you know police in schools and what is the impact. We've got to train people who know how to do de-escalation, um, who can do intervention, who can do anti-bullying work. I think what's clear about this whole time is that, and everyone would agree, we've got to stop sending police to go support someone who's having a mental health crisis or who's homeless. I think everyone would agree, even police officers, that that's not the right person to be addressing those situations. And the cities that have moved to pairing police with mental health workers um, and EMTs for those kinds of calls have found a decrease in arrests. And so uh, this is an important moment for us, for us to be thoughtful about making reforms. With 10,000 schools and 6 million children, how does one sleep at night with that kind of power on your shoulders in the middle of a pandemic and protests? Yeah, we are. You know, it's an understatement that we're living in challenging times. It, it's really just at times it can be overwhelming when you think of the enormity of it. Right. Pandemic. Right. I had to look up the word pandemic to really understand the magnitude when the pandemic first began to understand that this means an episode of worldwide proportion. And so as we've learned about the pandemic, it really has meant fear and questions for parents and students. What is tomorrow going to bring? You know, am I going to be safe? And, you know, really trying to just really provide good steering for all of our school leaders and our students and families at a time where everything is just unknown. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's challenging. But while the science isn't fully settled, we're, we're learning together and we will just continue to learn what we can about how we'd be safe. And so that's how we've approached this, you know, respecting that there are a thousand school districts each making decisions for those 10,000 schools, but we try to give them really good guidance on you know what they can expect and how do they get the personal protective equipment and what's the best way to arrange students and staff to keep students safe when school reopens. As a teacher myself, I just want to thank you for letting us know. I think my brethren, other teachers in other states have been on the edge of their seat not knowing if they're returning to the fall semester. And I appreciate that you and our governor made a decision and you are believers in science and data and are keeping teachers and students and their parents safe. So tell me what it was like to be one of the first state superintendents to say this is what's right for those that we serve. You know, it, it, at times it's, uh, it's tough. You know, when we have great leaders all across the state, but when you're in a situation where you're dealing with something that is unknown, everyone looks to, you know, the state. Uh, for answers. And and so it's hard to make decisions that fit every single community. But I have a non-negotiable and the non-negotiable is what's safe. And we should never cross the line uh, doing what's right from a safety perspective. And so, you know, I've always said the schools aren't going to open unless it's safe to do so. And And so there are times when we needed to move into distance learning and stay in distance learning. And, and I've been you know, fears are an advocate for saying, um, do what's right, even though we know it's not ideal. And, and so I'm grateful to our teachers that have tried to be nimble. You know, we moved into distance learning overnight with no instructions on how to do that, with no playbook, and in most cases, limited training. And, and so I'm grateful that teachers really, you know, 
took into account that we had to do this to help keep kids safe. I'm impressed at the resolve of our students, parents, and, and educators to really, you know, put safety first when we first moved into the into the distance learning, uh, you know, to, to address the needs of the pandemic. Uh, I, I think now, as we prepare to reopen schools, there's still a lot of questions, but we know that there are things that we have to do to make distance learning better. We have to make sure that every student has a computer. We have to make sure that we provide more training to teachers and educators on how to do distance learning. This is new for us, but this is our way forward for now. And so uh, we're, we're figuring it out together. What I've learned so far is no matter how scary it is, we, we look at the available research and data that we have. We, we talk to each other. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting regularly with county health officers and you know, public health officials, superintendents, teachers, classified staff, parents. Constantly, we're all talking together about how we're going to make this work to keep our students safe and make sure they still get an education. I honor you that because I, I think as someone who watches news voraciously, I was really disheartened when the party line for the Department of Education was kids go back to school regardless. And what I love about you is that you don't believe in a one-size-fits-all approach. So can you talk about why it's so important not to just, regardless of the spike with the coronavirus as of late, that you have been thoughtful and have been in the trenches to really do what's best for our kids and best for our teachers? I guess at the end of the day, what guides me is being a parent. And, you know, when I got into public service, I was told that I should always do things in a way that would make my grandparents proud. Now, the reality is my grandparents passed away when I was very, very young. So I switched that mantra to say, always do things in a way that would make my kids proud. As a dad, I don't think I could just carelessly say, oh, well, just let's just try to go back to school and see what happens. And if people get hurt, we can scale back. My motivation is to do no harm and to be preventative. And we're, we're dealing with the biggest crisis of our lifetime. You know, I don't know that we'll ever see anything this significant. And I think we have to be cautious. And so that's what motivates me, even when others around are, are saying, well, let's just give it a try. I think every life matters. And I don't think that we can be careless and to just sort of say, well, you know, some have said some people may lose their lives, but it'll be a small percentage. I don't think that's okay. I think every person's grandparents or parents or students, their lives matter. And we should not be reckless to sort of say that there's some percentage of loss that we can accept and tolerate. What we should be saying is, let's do the things that we know matter. And that means everyone wearing a face mask and, and maintaining physical distance. If we cannot do that, let's acknowledge that and look for a way to overcome those barriers. And so, again, just being a parent and wanting to make sure everyone's safe that's what motivates me. You know, that's going to continue to be my guidepost uh, for how I hope to lead for our six million students in the state. In the wake of the loss of John Lewis, who is our namesake and an original freedom writer from the 60s, I, I love that he always encourages people to get into good trouble. And as a leader, how do you see yourself getting into good trouble? You know, I, I had the honor of meeting John Lewis when he came to California once a few years ago and introduced my children to him. And we all sat in awe as we listened to him tell his story as a student leader, you know, addressing racism, uh, addressing the need for change in the face of incredible odds, even at his own physical consequence, him being beaten and hospitalized. And his message was beyond inspiring. And 
you really challenged me and I think my children to think about ways that we can do more and what can we sacrifice because he sacrificed so much and then dedicating his life to serving um, and to making change. And so in this time when we continue to see police brutality and racism and bias and injustices of so many kinds, I think we need to support our students of today in being the John Lewis's of today. And there's so many connections and parallels to the student movements now and, you know, and the Black Lives Matter movement. And for those who are calling for racial justice, our students are calling for racial justice. And it's been great to work with our students who um, we have a youth advisory council. And as we've worked to support those students, they've also been teaching us and our students have called for more ethnic studies. And most recently, we put on an ethnic studies, a mini series to really to teach students about ethnic studies and the importance of it, students seeing positive contributions of people who are African-American, Latino, Native American, and Asian Pacific Islander. We really want to support our students in seeing those positive things that give them positive self-esteem and that, and that really help them to overcome racist messages that have been provided to them. Um, I'm, I'm you know, deeply saddened by the loss of Congressman Lewis. I'm grateful for his service. And I think that we have to honor his memory um, by what we do uh, in this time to make our communities better, to have social justice, racial justice, to create healing and to create partnership across all peoples. Because one thing I enjoyed learning about him is that he builds bridges, literally, um, and, and uh, across people of all races and backgrounds. And that's what we have to do to create the conditions that we want to see in our communities. And I, I think of that image of him in his camel trench coat backpack with, you know, an apple, a banana and an orange and a toothbrush in case he spent the night in jail, walking over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and then seeing that service of him taking that ride once again after losing his life and thinking how history has repeated itself. But this time there will be change. A lot of people have been petitioning to have that bridge named the John Lewis Bridge. So what are your feelings like if schools in California have been named after folks who were nefarious or might have had some dishonest past? What do you feel like when their school names honor someone that is not upholding the values that we hold dear in 2020? I, I ask that specifically because where the Freedom Irish went to school, they went to school at Woodrow Wilson High School. And in the wake of Princeton University taking down the Woodrow Wilson name from buildings, a lot of the Freedom Riders are curious if at some point Woodrow Wilson will be renamed. I think now is a good time for us to really begin the process of renaming schools. I think it's really unacceptable for us to ask students to walk into halls of learning that are named after individuals who stood for things that were the antithesis of what these students represent. Someone who was a Confederate leader or someone who was known to have racist practices, what message does that send to students of color who enter those buildings every single day? And what does it do to their psyche when they understand that they are in a school named after someone who who despised and hated them? Uh, you know, I think that this is a time for us to think about renaming schools. And yes, those individuals may have made contributions, but if they also contributed to hate that has really gripped this nation for far too long, I think it's time for healing. And sometimes healing can come from something as simple as making a change in the name of a school. And I think it's time for us to make those changes. We have to consider the feelings and the needs of our students in our communities. And uh, let's be sensitive to those 
changes. And I know change is hard, but for us to ignore the impact that these names can have on the individuals who are attending these schools, I think is just really unacceptable. I think we have to do the hard work of re-envisioning our educational system and our institution to make sure that they are named after individuals who really reflect uh, the needs of, of the people that we serve in our community. I'm so glad that you were on the right side of history saying, let's change names to reflect our values, our moral compass. Yeah, you know, I attended Woodrow Wilson Middle School. I, I worked for an educational program that was named uh, after Woodrow Wilson at Princeton University. And these were things that, you know, um, I, I always, I, I never really knew this history. And so I never really gave any thought to the name of the school. And I had no reason to be concerned about it. But now we do know. And I just think that we can't look the other way. And I think it sends a, I think it sends a really sad and dangerous message to our students if we look the other way and say, yeah, but this person espoused racist views. But, you know, those things have impact. Those things can contribute to trauma. We know that many of our students are experiencing trauma during this pandemic. We know that many of our students experience trauma when they witness the brutality and the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. You know, we have to talk about that. And, you know, this year I've launched a, a new initiative that will help us talk about implicit bias in all of our schools. That means we're building a training program to help educators in 10,000 schools have the tools to be able to talk about race and bias and how do we use education to counter that. And so these are hard conversations, no doubt. But I think we have to be prepared to do the hard work. You know, we ask students to do it. And so we, as their educators and as, as their adults, we have a responsibility to do the same. We talk about critical thinking all the time. To me, critical thinking extends itself to having hard conversations about renaming our institutions, about looking at the fact that bias exists in every single sector, not just education, but that we have to look at bias wherever it, it exists and root it out and, and recognize the beautiful diversity that we have in this state, in this nation, in this world. And what are we doing to build partnership across race and ethnicity? We've got a lot of work to do, and, and I believe that our student leaders are going to help us to get there. But, you know, we've got to take critical thought into consideration, and that means, you know, taking on really hard conversations and making changes of institutions, looking at the curriculums that we use. Sometimes they're just unintended things that have an impact, and they've contributed to the kinds of disproportionality that we see for our students, higher suspension rates, higher dropout rates, you know, an achievement gap, you know. These things have persisted for decades. And so it seems to me um, that we've got nothing to lose but only to gain by rethinking how institutions are shaped and named, rethinking how we approach you know, students who have been more disadvantaged because of systems and institutionalized racism and oppression. You know, we can put ourselves in a position where we all win. And I just think that's what these United States re represent. And I think now is the time uh, for us to move in this direction and for us to move together on behalf of all of our students. Mm. I love that education can, in its purest sense, be a way to equalize an unfair playing field. So I love that you are such an advocate for civil rights being a part of the fabric of public schools. You know, I'm a public school girl, born and, born and raised, and all of my teaching has been in public schools. So I love that you really believe that it's, it's civil rights and equity. I also really love the civil rights movement and the parallels that our students can benefit from as they become the advocates of today. The civil rights movement, like so many movements, has been student-led. 
And it led to all the freedoms that we enjoy today, the right to vote, the right to live where you want to, the right to love where you want to. All of these came with sacrifice, and oftentimes student movements have helped to lead them. We've seen in recent times that our students are also willing to lead. You know, our students have led movements to get guns out of our community, to make our schools safer. And now our students are on the forefront in leading uh, to say that we want racial justice and social justice and change uh, in our schools. And so I'm proud of our students. And I believe that movements do make change, but they can also teach. So, yes, we should study the civil rights movement. We should look for the parallels. We should look for how that connects to, you know, what we want students to become. Right. We're not just teaching you know, science and, 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 and math. We're teaching critical thinking. We're encouraging students to be civically engaged. We talk about civics in our schools. And when you look at the civil rights movements um, and, and, and the movements of today, uh, these are movements that speak to how uh, we want students to become civically engaged because they're going to become citizens of the world. We have listeners in all 50 states and 70 countries. So I feel really lucky that you were my state superintendent in the state of California, but I feel I feel bad for all of the other states that don't have courageous leaders like yourself. So what could be a moonshot for the listeners who don't live in California, that don't have the privilege and the honor of having you take care of our kids? What are some things that they can ask for of their legislators, their state superintendents, their departments of education? Well, yeah, I think some states do better than others in terms of overall how they support education. And I think we have to just, you know, study each other's states and look for best practices that will will make a difference. You know, some states have really invested in, in helping students of color to overcome barriers that have been in their way to help them achieve and have success. We should be studying that. Other states have really made investments in creating dual language uh, immersion programs so that our students become global thinkers of tomorrow. This supports our industry and business. And, you know, when, when our students can speak more than one language, obviously it supports their brain development when they're young, but it also supports them being global thinkers that can really help us compete in the, in the global marketplace. And so, you know, one thing that I think we have in common across all of our states is how can we support students with disabilities? Uh, you know, we live in a time when we don't do a good job of funding special education. I think we could stand to study best practices in each of our states and figure out how to better serve students with disabilities to help them achieve their full potential um, and to have success. Our students deserve the same uh, treatment as uh, any other student, and our students uh, have varying abilities, but we've got to support them. And I just think that we can learn from each other across our state, and, um, and our students are going to benefit from that sharing of best practices. I think you would make John Lewis very proud. You are humbly serving and doing so in the most difficult of times, but I love how you are trying to lift and elevate a conversation that is, is a difficult conversation, but a conversation that needs to be had. So I thank you for your time. I thank you for your leadership. And I hope to see you someday at the Department of Education as our fearless leader for the entire country. That That is my moonshot. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep that out in the universe. I appreciate you saying that. You know, there's no clear playbook on how to, how to deal with the pandemic. For many, this is the first time that we've been confronted with something like this. So that means that the only way we're going to get through it is together, as you point out. And so that means we do have to lead with love and we have to work collaboratively across all sectors, across 
all backgrounds. Uh, there's room on the bus for all of us. And I'm grateful for what we can do together for the 6 million students in the state of California, the 40 million Californians in our, in our state, and really the people all over the world. So as you said, let's lead with love. Let's work collaboratively. And together, let's be the change that we need to see in the world. I'm so grateful to our guest, Tony Thurman, for his transparency, his time, and his talent. As educators and students return to school in the coming days and weeks, may they stay safe. May those with power and influence help to close the digital divide. And may we as a society support student-led activism to fight for schools that are more equitable, more fair, more just. That concludes our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, I'm your host, Aaron Gruel. This episode was produced and edited by Matt Martin-Hall and Rob Falk. Until next time, dear listeners, may you write what needs to be written and tell what needs to be told. <laughs>